You are listening to the Faith Church Podcast. Learn more about our church at faithinchandler.com. When I was a kid, uh, we never went to the movies. Uh, We watched a lot of movies, but we never went to the movies. And so a lot of the movies that I saw when I was younger, I saw them on television. And that's gotten me into trouble before because what they show on television is not what they would show uh, in the movies or if you rent the the video. And so I might say, hey, man, that that was a great movie. And people are like, you know that one scene? I'm like, I don't even know what you're talking about because that didn't make uh, the television uh, release. But I noticed when I, was, when I was younger and my family had cable, we went through a long period where we didn't, but the little bit of time we had cable, it seemed like they showed the same movies over and over and over again. And I realized later that that was probably due to the fact that there were contracts and royalties involved, and they showed movies that they, they knew would be uh, successful, that people would want to watch, but didn't cost them too much uh, to show on their networks. And I remember that it seemed like all of the time, um, Shawshank Redemption was one that showed on a regular basis. It seemed like it was always on. But another one, it seemed like to me what was always on, was the movie A Few Good Men. And if you remember A Few Good Men, it's the military courtroom drama where Tom Cruise's character is, is uh, questioning Jack Nicholson's character. And basically he goads Jack Nicholson into this heated moment where he loses control and he yells that, that kind of quintessential line from the movie, you can't handle the truth. And the reason I titled my message, You Can't Handle the Truth, is because John 18 is all about this courtroom drama that plays out as Jesus is in the, the courtroom or the court gathering of the high priest and then of Pilate. And the very end of this chapter Pilate is questioning Jesus, and he says to him, what is the truth even? And so we're going to look at all of these verses that kind of build to that moment in John 18. We can't read them all, but start with me in verse 1 and hang with me as we skip through some of the important verses toward this point. When Jesus had thus spoken these words, so Jesus has finished his discourse and his prayer over the disciples, he went forth with his disciples over the brook Cedron, where was a garden, into the which he entered and his disciples. And Judas also, which betrayed him, knew the place. For Jesus oftentimes resorted there with his disciples. Jesus doesn't go to a place that Judas is unfamiliar with. Jesus is not hiding. He goes to a place that Judas would know where Judas would easily be able to find him. He also goes to a place where it would be easy for his disciples to scatter and run. If Judas had brought the the authorities back to the upper room, Jesus and the disciples would have been stuck there. But because it's in a garden, all of the disciples are able to scatter and run, as they do here in just a little bit. Judas, then having received a band of men and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, cometh thither with lanterns and torches and weapons. What are you doing when you gather lanterns and torches and weapons? You're going to apprehend someone. You're going to hunt someone down. And so they're imagining that they're going to go where Jesus is at and there's going to be a chase. There's going to be a fight. They're going to have to go through this garden with their torches and lanterns and find him and use these weapons to convince Jesus and the disciples to submit. But something very different happens. Verse 4, Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that should come upon him, went forth and said unto them, Whom seek ye? Jesus meets them. 
They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus saith unto them, I am he. And Judas also which betrayed him stood with them. And as soon as he said unto them, I am he, they went backward and fell to the ground. Jesus meets them and says, who are you looking for, guys? They say, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus says, well, I'm the guy. When Jesus utters those words, the people fall to the ground. Now look down at verse 19. Jesus has gone to the high priest. He's been tried. They're asking him. The high priest then asked Jesus of his disciples and of his doctrine. And Jesus answered him, I spake openly to the world. I ever taught in the synagogue and in the temple, whither the Jews always resort. And in secret have I said nothing. Jesus said, listen, I've been an open book. I've proclaimed these things out in the open. I haven't been secretive at all. Why askest thou me? Ask them which heard me. What have I said unto them? Behold, they know what I said. And when he had thus spoken, one of the officers which stood by struck Jesus with the palm of his hand, saying, Answerest thou the high priest so? In other words, who do you think you are to talk to the high priest like that? Jesus answered him, If I have spoken evil, bear witness of the evil. But if I have spoken well, why smitest thou me? Why are you smacking me around? I'm just being truthful. Now look down at verse 33. Jesus comes to be in Pilate's courtroom. Pilate entered into the judgment hall again and called Jesus and said unto him, Art thou the king of the Jews? Jesus answered him, saying, This thing, sayest thou this thing of thyself, or did others tell it thee? And Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Thine own nation and the chief priests have delivered thee unto me. What hast thou done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight, that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from hence. Pilate therefore said unto him, Art you a king then? And Jesus answered, Thou sayest that I am a king. To this end was I born. And for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth heareth my voice. And Pilate said unto him, What is truth? And when he had said this, he went out again to the Jews, and saith unto them, I find no fault in him at all. It seems to me that Christmas starts earlier and earlier all of the time. I know that some of you are excited about Christmas and you've already started decorating, and I judge you harshly. (laughs) I I want to give Thanksgiving its due. I want us to take time for Thanksgiving because I believe that our culture could use a little bit more gratitude, and so I like to emphasize Thanksgiving. But I totally understand the excitement and the joy of celebrating Christmas as soon as possible. Even though it's not December yet, this is a Christmas passage. I know it doesn't seem like a Christmas passage because there's no nativity, there's no manger. But in verse 37, Jesus says, To this end was I born. This is what I was born for. This is the reason that I came. I came into this world that I should bear witness unto the truth. That's the reason that Jesus came to give us witness, to declare to us, to demonstrate to us the truth. And Pilate reacts to this, as many people today do, and says, what is truth? 
This is so fitting for our day and age because we live in a time where truth itself is not agreed upon. In 1966, Time magazine had a very iconic cover that said, Is God Dead? And then just in 2017, more than 50 years later, they put on this cover, Is Truth Dead? And there's a connection between these two, not only in the typography and the iconic imagery, but there's an idea here. First, they came to say that God no longer lives, but now they have come to say that truth no longer matters. We live in a day and an age where we can't agree on basic terms. We can't agree on basic facts. We live in an age of fake news and moral relativism. I remember a few years ago watching the news and a a pundit from uh, the the news, this news correspondent was interviewing a politician from D.C. And he said, these are facts. And the politician said, no, they're alternative facts. And I thought, what are alternative facts? We live in an age where what's true for you is true for you, and what's true for me is true for me, and you can't speak against my truth. If you do, you're intolerant. But this is not a new problem. Pilate had experienced it. And so Pilate's just kind of fed up with this whole process, knowing that everyone is kind of skewing the story to suit their needs. Pilate, who's had to oversee many trials like this and and settle down the controversies that would rise up in Israel and in Jerusalem. Pilate knows that everybody is just telling their version of the events. And so you can almost hear the exasperation in Pilate's voice as he walks out from questioning Jesus back out to uh, approach the Jewish high priest. He says, what does this even matter? What is truth anyway? What we have here in this chapter is we have a demonstration of what the truth is. And while Pilate was a a Roman governor, he had been in the ever-expanding Roman Empire and seen politics at work, while he had been given the charge of keeping the Jews calm so that there was no revolt, there was no anarchy, no riots. He was to keep the peace. While he had been doing all of this, he'd gotten to this place where he was just over it. And it might be that you're at a place where you're just over everybody's stories, you're over everybody's take on what the truth is. And if that's where you're at, I hope that today you can take some comfort, you can take some solace in the fact that there is truth, that you can see it here in God's Word today. Now, Pilate says this as he's leaving, questioning Jesus, and going out to talk to the Jews. And the reason that we see throughout chapter 18 and into chapter 19 that Pilate is speaking to the Jews and then he's coming in and he's questioning Jesus and he's getting answers from him and then he's going back out and he's speaking to the Jews is that because while Jesus is being tried by a Roman in Pilate's judgment hall, the Jews would not enter into Pilate's abode. They wouldn't enter into his building because to do so would mark them ceremonially unclean. Uh, If you look at verse 28, you can see this explained. It says, And they themselves went not into the judgment hall, lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. All of this is taking place during the Passover, and they want to be a part of the Jewish feast of Passover. This was a big moment. And if they go into Pilate's 
home, his dwelling, his place of judgment. If they go in there, they will be marked ceremonially unclean and it would take several days for them to go through the process of ceremonially cleansing themselves from the stink or the dirt or the grime of a foreigner who doesn't honor God so that they could go into the temple, they could go into the feast and participate. And so here in this moment where they're trying to have Jesus killed, in this moment where they're trying to, they're lying about Jesus and they're trying to convince Pilate to come to their side and kill Jesus, they are worried about becoming ceremonially unclean. They're worried about doing something that's going to hinder them from taking their chief places in the Passover meal and everybody looking at them during this big holiday, this big celebration. So they don't go in to where Jesus is. They're not hearing Pilate's questioning of him because that would mess up their plans for the Passover. And Pilate must have been just so over their hypocrisy that they have a sticking point about coming into his home because of the rules and the regulations, but he can sense that this man that they have brought him is innocent and they want him to kill this man for them. Pilate's exasperated. Here, the the chief priests, the religious leaders of this country, this nation, this people group that he is the governor over, the people that are supposed to lead the people to morality and truth, they're obeying the little laws about ceremony and trying to kill an innocent man. So Pilate questions Jesus. He walks out and he says, I find no fault with him. What's your deal? What's the issue here? What's going to happen over the chapter and a half here through chapter 18 and chapter 19 is Pilate's going to try to find a way that he can appease the people and do the right thing. See, we live in a world that's very similar to the situation that Pilate is in. We live in a world where we have to choose will we do the right thing or will we do the pragmatic thing? Will we do what's right Or will we win? We live in this world where we have this idea that to win, to get our way, we've got to turn our back on what's fair, what's just, what's correct. We say things like, listen, if we don't play by the same rules that they're playing by, we're going to lose. Listen, if we don't don't use the same tactics that the other guys are using, we're going to lose. There's a big difference between winning and being right. When we seek to win the argument at any cost, when we seek to prove the other side wrong at any cost, we'll use anything at our disposal, right or wrong. We'll belittle others, we'll slander them, we'll insult them, we'll share information that we have no idea if it's true, but we sure hope it is because it makes the other guy look bad. Jesus didn't call us to win. God has not called his people to win. He's called us to do what is right. So here in this courtroom drama, because Jesus is inside the judgment hall and the priests are on the outside, we have this this contrast that's taking place. We see an illustration of this same kind of turmoil, the same contrast in Peter in this chapter. Look back at verse 10. 
This is when they come to arrest Jesus in the garden and they're asking and Jesus has volunteered himself up. He's walked up to them and said, I'm the guy you're looking for. They've fallen backwards and they have picked themselves up. And Jesus says, listen, I'm the one you're looking for. And verse 10 says, then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and smote the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Then said Jesus unto Peter, put your sword away. The cup which my father hath given me, shall I not drink it? Peter wanted to win. He's so desperate to win in this moment that he pulls out his sword against this large group of men who are carrying torches and lanterns and weapons. And he's got a small sword and he takes a swing and he knocks the ear off of one of the servants. Peter wanted to defend Jesus. Jesus says, Peter, put the sword away. Am I not going to drink the cup my Father has given me? Matthew 26, 53, Matthew tells us that Jesus says in this moment, listen, Peter, I could call down 12 legions of angels if I wanted to. Jesus doesn't need Peter to defend him. Can I tell you something? The gospel doesn't need us to defend it. Charles Spurgeon said, the word of God is like a lion. You don't defend a lion. You let the lion loose. The lion will defend itself. Jesus has told the disciples, I have overcome the world. He tells them, I could bring down 12 legions of angels to protect myself. I can wage and win this war right now if I want to, but I choose not to. I choose to sacrifice myself. Listen, if you want to hear about the the war that Jesus will wage and win very handily, come on Wednesday nights and be a part of the Revelation study. That's where Jesus talks about that war being won. But here he's winning the war over death, hell, and the grave. He's winning the war over sin by sacrificing himself. And Jesus wins by continuing to do what's right. Some of the best advice my grandfather ever, ever gave me is, Daniel, you don't need to win. You just need to be the good guy. So what is the truth? Well, the truth is real. That's what the truth is. Pilate says, what is truth? The truth is real. The truth is what is real without the spin. Do you notice that John, and he tells us that Peter cuts off this guy's ear, that John tells us the guy's name. Why? Because John says, listen, you want to ask him, go ask him. John doesn't say, hey, let me tell you about this guy I heard about whose second cousin's brother-in-law experienced this. He said, no, the guy's name is Malchus. He's one of the chief priest's servants. You can go talk to him. And throughout the Gospels and in the book of Acts, we have all of these names recorded so that you can go and talk to them. And in 1 Corinthians, when Paul writes a letter to the people, he says, listen, this this happened. Jesus rose from the dead and he appeared to 500 people and many of them are still alive. You can go talk to them. These people were witnesses. Go and speak to them. John is not afraid of people looking into this further. He invites it. God's word is real. And we don't need to be afraid that people are going to look too closely. We don't need to be like the Wizard of Oz who says, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. Go ahead and look wherever you want. Dive into it. There have been plenty of moments where people who wanted to set out to disprove the Bible in the process have become followers of Jesus. 
Nicky Gumbel, who is the man behind the Alpha Chorus that we use in our Alpha groups, he sat down to read the Bible one night because his friends had become Christians. He thought, this is horrible. I've got to save them from this. I'm going to read the Bible to show them how crazy this is. And he reads the Bible and God changes his heart. Lacey, who was baptized during the 11 o'clock service last week, she came to our Alpha course, and in the first week she said, I don't believe in God. You know what we didn't need to do in that moment? We didn't need to go, listen here. We just need to let the Word of God do its work. We didn't need to defend the lion. All of the details about Jesus' trial, most of which we can't cover this morning, all of these moments about Jesus first going to the high priest's house, Caiaphas, and, and then being there at the son-in-law's house, and then making his way to Pilate. And other gospel writers talk to us about the fact that not only did he appear before Pilate, but he appeared before Herod, and then Herod sends him back to Pilate. All of this was open record, and they're saying, listen, look into it if you want to. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all record these details so that you can look into their life, you can look into the story of Jesus, and we're given four witness accounts of Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection, because you can look into it if you want to. And what did John say was the purpose of writing this book? He said in chapter 20 and verse 21, These are written that you might believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and that believing... You might have life through His name. What is the truth? The truth is real. It's real. And feel free to look into it if you want. I'm not going to stop you. I encourage you. I've always been fascinated by behind-the-scenes type looks at, at, at movies and, and plays, the people who try to, to portray fiction in a, con, in a convincing way. And I remember when I was a kid, um, they re-released Star Wars and when they did that, they re-released all of this behind-the-scenes footage. And, and back then, they didn't have computer graphics. You know, when, when you see the ship flying over the surface of the Death Star, there's a model that they made. And I remember watching this, this little clip about how they built this huge model and sitting out in the parking lot, and they run the camera over, and that's how they got that. They didn't build it in a computer. And the way that we've progressed and, and the, the graphics that we can use, the way that we can portray things to give it that convincing feel is, is powerful today. So much so that if you go back and you watch some of those movies, you're like, oh, that's fake. Really? Yeah, it's fake. It's about people in a galaxy a long time ago, far, far away. You see, you need special effects when you're writing fiction. But when you're portraying the truth, you don't need any window dressing. You don't need any special effects. The high priests are using spin and angles to make their case. They're trying to convince Pilate that Jesus is no friend to Caesar, that he's an enemy of the state, that Pilate's going to be in trouble himself if he doesn't kill Jesus. They're putting window dressing over their lie. They're trying to make it as convincing as possible. And Pilate comes in and he asks Jesus, are you the king? And Jesus says, what do you think? I, I just, I'm, the reason I'm here is to bear witness to the truth. Jesus puts up no defense like Stephanie said. He just doesn't speak up on his behalf. We don't need to add window dressing to the gospel. The gospel doesn't need our special effects. 
We don't need to build the illusion that it's real because it is real. What is the truth? The truth is real. And the truth is powerful. I love verse 6. Verse 6 tells us that when Jesus says, I am He, they go backward and fall to the ground. Jesus, just the confession that He is, who He says that He is, is so powerful in that moment that they're knocked off their feet. They didn't wear socks, but if they were wearing socks, they would have knocked their socks off. Is that powerful? And some people have surmised, oh, well, they were just so surprised that Jesus gave Himself up and that He was willing to admit and didn't run, that they all took a step back. They were just shocked and they tripped over each other. That might have been so, but there was a spiritual, divine, powerful moment here that when Jesus says, I am He, the same Jesus that it says, I am the bread of life, I am the good shepherd, I am the I am, that when He speaks these words, it knocks them back because it's powerful. It's powerful. When Jesus would stand and preach in the synagogues and in the temple, the people would respond with what power and authority he teaches with. That's powerful. And when we came in contact with the gospel, it resonated with us because it's powerful. It touches on the needs of our hearts. It touches on the brokenness that we have. It calls us out in the middle of a gathering of People we hardly even know, and it seems like the pastor has read our mail and our journal and knows everything about us and has been spying on us, and I don't even know any of that stuff, but the Holy Spirit is convicting you because it's powerful. It's so powerful we can't deny it. It's so powerful that it transforms our whole lives. It reorients everything that we think. It's the most powerful force on the planet. The truth that Jesus is the Son of God who died for the sins of the world and rose again. And in Pilate's limited experience of Jesus, he starts to feel this power. Because all of chapter 18 and the first 15 verses of chapter 19 are all about Pilate trying to find a way out of this mess. He can sense this is real. Matthew tells us that in the middle of this trial, in the middle of this back and forth and trying to find a way that he can appease the priests and not kill this innocent man, that in the middle of all of this, Pilate receives a message from his wife. And the message that Pilate receives from his wife is, have nothing to do with this man, because I have been suffering all day from a dream I had about him. This was so powerful. It was <laughs> impacting Pilate. It was impacting his wife. They could sense something is real about this. At the end of Chapter 18, Pilate tries to convince the people to take Jesus as their Passover pardon. Every Passover, they would pardon one criminal. And Jesus says, listen, Pilate says, why don't we pardon Jesus? And to make it a real obvious choice, he says, you can have either Jesus or Barabbas. And the irony here is incredibly thick because Barabbas is a thief, a murderer. He's been part of an actual insurrection. He's guilty of all the things and more that they're accusing Jesus of. And the high priest in an instant say, give us Barabbas. Give us Barabbas. In a last-ditch effort, Pilate has Jesus tortured, hoping that that's enough to satisfy them. He brings Jesus out, beaten and bloodied, shows them, look, behold, the man. They can barely recognize him. He's been beaten. He's been whipped. He's been punched. He's been spit upon. He's been mocked. And still they want more. They want death.
Why did Pilate go to such great lengths to save Jesus' life? Why did he care so much about this Jew from Nazareth? Pilate's charge from the Roman Empire was to keep the peace, and if he could kill one to keep the peace, that was nothing to the Romans. When Jesus is crucified, he's just crucified among a couple other thieves they are going to be killed that now. People who would be killed for stealing. Putting someone to death was really not that big of a deal. Why is Pilate going to such great lengths to try to keep Jesus alive? Because Pilate could sense this is real. And even the man who says what is truth can get a sense that this is the truth. He is the truth. What is the truth? The truth is real. And the truth is powerful. And the truth is the Word of God. In John 17, Jesus is praying for the disciples. Remember, He prayed that God would be glorified. He prayed that the disciples would would persevere. He, He prayed that they would be unified, but He also prayed that they would be sanctified. And He said, sanctify them with Thy truth. Thy word is truth. What is the truth? God's word is truth. And it is real. And it is powerful. In that moment, in A Few Good Men, when Jack Nicholson's character loses his mind and begins yelling in the courtroom, he says, you can't handle the truth. And the idea is that you can't handle the truth because it's so dangerous, it's scary. The truth is we can't handle the truth of the gospel because it's so wonderful, it's scary. It's so good. We can't handle it. The the truth of Jesus is so powerful, so real, so wonderful that when we come in contact with it, something has to give. Either we are wrecked or we run from it because we're afraid of it. The gospel will either transform you or send you running in fear. And some of you, you've been attending church and you've been coming in contact with the gospel, you've come in contact with the life and message of Jesus Christ, and it's so powerful that it's making you uncomfortable. And I've got to tell you that it's not going to lessen. It's not going to weaken. It's real. It's powerful. It's wonderful. And you're either going to have to run from it or submit to it. That's what's going to happen to happen. Some of you, you came to know the the power of the gospel years ago, and it made this incredible transformation in your life, but years have passed. And you've been living this Christian life for so long, you've kind of, the memory of how powerfully it changed you, how powerfully it forgave you, how powerfully it challenged you, is kind of faded off into the distance. And today, when we know that someone else needs the gospel, we, we're, we're kind of tempted to give them the gospel plus. The gospel plus a little bit of special effects. The gospel plus a little bit of, of our spin, our angle. The gospel doesn't need that. It's a lie and let it loose. In 1994, there was a group of fourth grade students in Portland, Maine, that they were learning about ocean currents. And their teacher had all 21 students write a letter 
and put their address in it and put it in a bottle. And she gave all 21 of those messages in a bottle to a fisherman who went off the coast of Maine. And while he was fishing, he threw them into the ocean. And two years later, one of those students received a letter in the mail from France. A little girl had been walking on the beach with her father and had come across one of those messages in a bottle. And as I'm, I'm sure as those fourth graders got into fifth grade, they began to forget about those messages. And if anybody ever brought it up, they go, I guess those, that didn't work. They got into sixth grade and became more and more of a distant memory. But when that letter came, it was a demonstration of the power of the Gulf Stream. It would, it would carry that across the ocean. That little message. And I know that there have been times that you've invited, that you've shared the witness, you've planted a seed, and years have gone by. Don't doubt the power of the gospel. Because that seed is still out there. It's truth. It's real. It's powerful. And who knows where it'll be carried. Last week we get to baptize Kara. And Kara came because her mom was attending church here and she wanted to attend church with her mom on Easter Sunday. But the reason her mom, Donna, was attending is because Shelly invited her over to the Casey's gas station. And in our foyer, we've got a little sign that says, invite a friend, change a life. And that might seem like overdoing it, but it's not. Because the gospel is that powerful that an invitation can be that powerful. And it might take a couple of years to go from coast to coast. But it's powerful enough to make it. Would you bow your heads with me for a word of prayer?